Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I love data centers. We love data centers! Welcome and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. Welcome to the I Love Data Centers podcast. My name is Rich Miller, and I'm the founder and editor of Data Center Frontier and your guest or your host for this episode. I'm sitting in for Sean Patrick Tario because we have turned the tables today, and Sean is going to be the guest on today's edition of the podcast. So, so welcome. Thank you, Rich. I'm I'm excited to have the tables turn and uh, and have this conversation. As uh, as some of the, your listeners know, you and I got to do this a couple of weeks ago, in which I was the guest and talked about sort of my career and some of my thoughts about the data center industry. So it's a, it's a great pleasure to be able to uh, sort of reverse the, the chairs here and uh, uh, let some of the people who've been listening to the podcast for uh, many episodes get to know your story and how you kind of came into the data center industry and, and what your journey has been. Uh, I thought an interesting place to start uh, would be with the podcast itself, the I Love Data Centers podcast. Most of the folks who are listening to this uh, are probably familiar with the podcast, have listened to, to previous episodes and, and enjoyed some of the insights they get from it. What prompted you to start the podcast? How did this get rolling? And what has the response been from the data center industry? That's uh, a great question. So it really spawned from a variety of different um, experiences and just factors kind of overlaying on top of, uh, of one another, uh, stemming from me just traveling the country. So when I was doing the trainings, which I'm, I'm sure we'll get to in a little bit, but I, I spent about three, four years of my life traveling across the country, going to two different cities a month, every month, uh, and touring different properties, touring different data centers, meeting different partners and service providers. Uh, and just providing education that's based on on the book, the, the data center collocation industry playbook. Uh, and as you can imagine, you know, going to all these different locations across the country and meeting all these people, I met some phenomenal human beings who had some amazing stories uh, about how they got started in the industry and how they saw the industry evolve from the you know going all the way back to the '80s to to where we are today. Uh, and, providing me with some very strategic insight. And I, uh, you know, I've, I've always been focused on education. I believe that the right, a rising tide raises all ships and that 
when people are armed with accurate information, they make better decisions. And so I've been trying for the bulk of my career to just educate and share information. And so it dawned on me uh, that I was having lunch with a, a friend of mine in the industry. I think, in fact, it was Hunter Newby. Um, and it, it just an idea popped in my head. I was like, this conversation that we're having right now should be recorded and should be shared <laughs> because it, it's valuable information that I think everybody would want to know and needs to know who's working in the industry. Um, and so that was really the first thought. And so I think I was literally at that table when I went online and bought ilovedatacenters.com. Um, I kind of hoard domain names and have about 60 different domain names at this point. And so that, that was really the impetus of the I Love Data Centers podcast. And as you started to reach out to folks and do the initial podcast, uh, what was the response that, the, that you got from it? Uh, one of the interesting things, I think, is that uh, it's really a long-form podcast. There's lots of podcasts that seem kind of tailored to uh, different you know, time periods. Uh, some folks will do 18 minutes because that's the average you know, drive time that people have going to work and, or, or you know, 45 minutes. Uh, what led you to go for a longer format, and uh, and then how did uh, how did the, the industry respond to the, to some of the first interviews, and um, and how did that work into your ability to kind of get other folks to to sit down with you? Yeah, so uh, great question. So I'm I'm a consumer, avid consumer of podcasts, and have been for uh, probably eight nine years since they were you know in their infancy. And the two that I've listened to religiously, uh, one is uh, WTF by Mark Marin. Um, and I'm going to look, look that one up. He interviews uh, different actors and movie producers and artists and musicians. Uh, and really, it's a long form conversation that generally is about an hour and a half per interview. And in that long form, you really get to understand where someone's coming from. And you get to feel like you you can build a relationship with, or at least have an understanding of the the ethos of the person that is in that interview. And the other one is Tim Ferriss's podcast, which is, I think right. it's just the Tim Ferriss podcast, which is also a long form. And it's similar, similar in format as well, in that he wants the, the listener to really, you know, understand why it is that he selected this person to interview and a lot of that comes from their story and getting their complete story. So for me, you know, I, I've been in uh, somewhat of a sales-related capacity for the majority of my career, even though I, I think very much like an engineer. But it's in building those relationships. It's in hearing those personal stories where I think the, the credibility, but also the, the nuance and the perspective and the um, context really takes hold. Um, so instead of just doing a bunch of short interviews where I just dig straight for the, the, the meat of the content, I really wanted to provide the context for the content. Because um, then that's what allows the listener to really gather more meaning, I believe, from, from the interview. I, I can tell you as someone who's listened to many of these podcasts that one of the most you know, intriguing elements of it for me is always the way that you go back and tell the, the history of the industry, really, through many of these folks that you're speaking with, who, many of whom, like Hunter Newby being a, a good example, have been involved from the very early days of the data center industry and, 
and it really uh, sort of refreshes my memory for, for different things that have uh, happened along my course and, and sort of adds to that whole sense of where things have come from. And the, the question you ask, which is always interesting, is uh, how did you wind up working in the data center industry? How did this journey start for you? Because, you know, maybe now we're starting to see it, but, you know, back in the day, nobody set out to work in the data center industry because everything was so new. So what's that piece of your story? How did you get started? Uh, what was your background? Uh, and, as you know, tell me a little bit about how your career got launched and how it wound uh, wound its way to the data center industry. Yeah, so it, that's a very interesting, interesting story. <laughs> um, but before I get get to that to that question, which I will, the, the other key piece for me is, you know, I I believe that people can only um, become that which they've either uh, read about or seen or um, contextualize in some capacity. And so I do a lot of work with entrepreneurs and when they say, you know, or, or even just career consulting. Um, I did some recruiting for a little while back in the day. And when people say, you know, I want this position, my response is simply, well, who do you know who's already in that position? And have you had a conversation with them about how they got into that role? And you don't have to follow the exact same path, but by understanding how someone got from point A to point B, because we all started from nothing <laughs> and, and had to create the positions that, that we're in, in some capacity. But that story can help people kind of conceptualize and contextualize how they might want to get from point A to point B. And so that history and that time frame, I think, is very important because people just don't land into, you know, uh, director of facilities for a major data center provider. They have to work their way through that. They don't land in the position of CEO of a data center company. They have to work their way to that and gain gain experience along the way. So that's that's one of the other key reasons why I, I think that timeline is important for people to, to understand. But getting to my story, um, I have a very eclectic, interesting story. And the the short form of it is that I, uh, I've been an entrepreneur since I was 19 as a sophomore in college in the Bay Area back in 1999. Um, me and a handful of buddies started a company and kind of had an entrepreneurial mindset for better or worse since the, the early days. And it took uh, my wife and I basically getting married and then finding out that we were pregnant for me to uh, really understand that the entrepreneurial lifestyle uh, especially for me at that time, because I wasn't working for a massive startup uh, and didn't have a lot of income and, and stability and security at the time uh, to accept the reality that I needed to provide some stability and security for my family. And so upon me, you know, taking two months where uh, I realized very quickly that it would, it was my job now as a husband and a father to step up for my family and, and uh, take that role seriously that I started looking into corporate America for something interesting. And I happened to have had a, a friend of mine from college who was a year older, Pete Sclafani, uh, who I interviewed. I think he was the second or third interview that I, I did on I Love Data Centers, um, who I had spent a number of years with. Uh, you know, We were both entrepreneurs. We were brainstorming ideas. He called me up one day and said, hey, uh, my good friend, Richard Donaldson, who was the first person I interviewed for I Love Data Centers podcast, uh, just called me up and he's working for a, a new data center company. And at the time I had no clue what the heck a data center was. 
Um, and they're looking for a director of marketing and, and product. And they're also looking for a director of sales. Um, and I think the two of us combined can come in there and really make a difference and, and grow this company. And I was like, Pete, you know, I've no, I have no clue what the hell a data center is. Can you first explain to me what a data center is before we go in for this interview? Um, and so he did, and we drove up together and we sat down and I walked through the 200 Paul data center, which was the first time my first experience walking through a data center. Um, and it blew my mind. It was, it was absolutely, um, I felt like I was in the matrix. Uh, a lot of the dots, you know, I'm a geek at the end of the day. And so a lot of the dots started connecting in my brain. Um, and I have, you know, a lot of family that have a background in real estate. And so the technology aspect of the data center world and the real estate aspect just all kind of clicked for me. And um, that was the very first foray that I got. So long story short, we got the job. Uh, we started working with Richard for a company called the United Layer uh, out of the 200 Paul data center. And over two years, we just grew that business from, I want to say a little bit less than a million in revenue to about 10 million in revenue. And the, the rest, you know, that was really kind of the spearhead for me working in the industry. Before you got to, to United Lair, you mentioned uh, uh, you were an entrepreneur and really focused on on starting things. What were what were the kind of uh, some of the kind of initiatives and and companies you uh, you you tried out? Uh, tell me a little bit about the the start of your entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, there's um, you know, truth be told, there's very little that I haven't tried. <laughs> um, I had a denim company at one point. I had a uh, a company called I Love Santa Cruz in Santa Cruz that sold uh, stickers and T-shirts, um, but the company uh, that we had in college was called All Dorm, uh, A L L D O R M uh, dot com. It's no longer in existence, uh, but that's that's a whole long story in and of itself. But we were your college everything superstore, and um, you know we were a bunch of college kids, and we realized that you know there were a bunch of people raising money in Silicon Valley in 1999. And if they could do it, why couldn't we do it? We were all very type A personality. And we happened to have a pretty cool team of someone with a finance background. We had two engineers, web engineers. Um, one of my buddies was you know, a prolific salesman and myself who just was a jack of many trades and would be able to just jump in and do whatever I needed to do. And so we started that business back in 99 and grew that for about four or five years and I kind of always had my hands in multiple pots. Once I started to realize um, that all it really takes to be an entrepreneur is vision and the ability, the ability to uh, stay focused and to execute on that vision, um, I started having lots of visions. <laughs> um, and what's what's funny is my mom of all of all people who um, has never really been too supportive of very many of my ideas taught me very early on that. Um, Cause I always had, I, whenever I talked to her or people, I'd always be pitching company ideas. She said, Sean, you know, there's always going to be great ideas. Um, you just need to pick one and focus and execute on that one. Uh, and you'll, and you'll be successful. And so, um, that was around the time when my wife and I got pregnant. And so I, uh, I really clung to that and stopped the, you know, dozen different business plans that I have. And I still have them sitting on my desktop for, for a rainy day, when it's, once I've got the means to jump back into getting a couple of these companies started, but um, so yeah, I've, I've done a lot of different things uh, as I as I explained on the side while I was working full time elsewhere. Or I at one point had like three different startups just waiting for one to pop, um, and none of them really did. <laughs> um, 
And so that's in part why I have so many different domain names and, and business plans that I've developed and, and created over the years. Um, yeah. But I, I also have spent a lot of time, you know, for me, cities are very interesting. Um, and so economic development within a, a city setting has also been a huge passion of mine. Um, I view politicians, for example, very similar to entrepreneurs. You know, they're, they're selling themselves. They're selling the vision that they have for the future. And they're getting people to donate and invest in their ability to deliver for a cause. Um, and so once, once I fully wrapped my head around that as an econ and poli-sci double major in college, um, I started falling in love with the process of building, uh, building a city and what makes cities successful. And so I did a lot of economic development work for the city of Santa Cruz when I was living there. I uh, did some work in Silicon Valley as well. And then uh, since moving to Raleigh, I've gotten myself fully entrenched here from a economic development standpoint as well. So for me, that's another big part of the quote unquote startup uh, and entrepreneurial venture that I have is really working within the city to empower people within the city to grow, grow it um, from within. Yeah, I think that's a great you know crossover, not just from the entrepreneurial perspective, but uh, you know from the the real estate and data center development piece of it, uh, the economics of it are always uh, an interesting tie-in as well. Particularly when people get into site selection and things like that. I, I wanted to circle back to uh, the experience that, that you mentioned, which is one that I also had, and I think a lot of people in our industry have had, which is you, your first time that you walk into a data center and see all the infrastructure, see the servers, uh, it's kind of a window into the fact that this whole other layer of, you know, back-end infrastructure is out there that, that you know, powers the, the, all the cool stuff that's appearing in your browser over the internet. Um, did you have a sense at that time, did, did sort of the light bulb go off in, in terms of you know, the way that the, the industry was going to grow. And uh, uh, tell me a little bit about, you know, what your, your first take was and, and then how things went at, at United Layer and, uh, and as you began to, to experience the, the growth uh, in the industry. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, it's interesting because prior to working at United Layer, I had spent time working for a company called Top Coder. And they, they ran the Google Code Jam competitions and it was really basically competitions for developers. And they would have algorithm competitions, they'd have coding competitions, uh, they have a variety of different competitions, which helped uh, organizations like NASA and the NSA and big banks and Google and Yahoo really vet developers and uh, also provide feedback to those developers as they competed so that they would see um, where they stacked up relative to their peers. So I spent about a year working for this company and I learned a lot about software development, about all the different development processes from agile to waterfall, um, you name it, you know, top coder had their own, what they called their top coder process, uh, which was intended to fully, uh, bake what something was going to look like before you go into the process of, of designing and building it from a software perspective. Um, so it was kind of contrary to the waterfall and agile perspective, but I learned software engineering. I learned applications, uh, how they're built, why they're built, the way they're built, um, codes of catalog, you know, catalogs of code in Java and .NET. And it was interesting. And, and the reason why I mention it is because it started to dawn on me how, uh, I don't want to say fickle, but how non-tangible 
uh, the software development world was, and that you know, you know, mobile apps were just becoming super hot. And um, God, what was one of the major ones back then? You know, Facebook was just popping uh, back then, and and there were a lot of just there was some like I know what it was. It was the fart app. So there was an app. I don't know if you remember early on, but when I, when I yeah, when I learned that the fart app, you know, was making tens of millions of dollars, it was just like mind blowing to me. Uh, but then, like a year later, no one downloaded the app because there was another version of the app that was even better. So the the developer who first built that app was starting to build other apps, but that app went was now obsolete, and so. Just the fickle nature of the of the software space and these app space and these widgets um, made me realize that if I was really going to spend a career doing something, I wanted to focus on something that was physical and tangible uh, and real. And so, walking into the data center, it really started putting it all together for me. You know, the fiber optic cables in the street; those are real. Those are real assets um, that can be leveraged. The actual physical data centers themselves are real assets that can be leveraged. Um, you know, is, you know, just because you have a data center doesn't mean that it's always going to be relevant. And I think a lot of the, the owners of these legacy data centers that have very low density, um, are starting to realize that today. Um, but that's part of what made me fall in love with, with the data center space is it catered to my, my ADHD, <laughs> which has never been diagnosed, but I'm almost positive. I have it, um, you know, constantly chasing after shiny objects because there's always something new and fascinating going on in our industry, uh, catered to my desire to focus on something tangible and real, uh, and it catered to just my technical, um, prowess and, and, uh, curiosity, uh, because you have to understand thermodynamics. You have to understand real estate. You have to understand network engineering. You have to understand applications to really tie it all together and understand why specific real estate data center assets are valuable to some customers and not valuable to others. And so that's where, you know, my brain just started firing on all cylinders. Um, and I fell in love with, with the industry. And I think I, I mentioned this story in my interview with Richard Donaldson, but it was, I, I can close my eyes and picture exactly where I was. I was working from home. I was sitting on my laptop when he explained to me what a trace route was, where you can go into your DOS prompt and you can basically trace the, the router hops uh, that take place when you search for a website from your laptop, you know, wherever you may be, to the packets of information, wherever they may be in a server somewhere. And that's what really just blew my mind. And that was the moment where the explosion went off in my brain and I was like, holy crap, this is awesome. I need to learn as much as I possibly can about this. Um, and so I went into the office the next day with Richard and Pete. And we said, we need to, let's just start bringing in all the smart people that we know that are around this industry. And let's put them in front of a whiteboard. And let's just download as much information so that we can get as educated as possible. And so that was kind of, you know, one of the many stories I have about what really kind of sparked my interest in, in what we do today. And, and what was the, given the timeline on this, what, uh, what uh, time period are we talking about that this was happening? Yeah. So I started working at United layer. I want to say in 19, or I'm sorry, 2007, um, 2006, 2007 timeframe. I think we started doing some consulting initially for United layer and then moved over to full time a couple of months later in 2006, 2007 timeframe. 
and we were there for about two years. So till around 2009. And, and uh, tell me a little bit, obviously we're uh, many of uh, your, our listeners are, are familiar with open spectrum, but maybe sort of map out how uh, your career kind of progressed after United Lair, and, uh, and then maybe we can talk about some of the things that have been big themes that, uh, uh, in your work with Open Spectrum. Sure. So um, it just so happened that um, so it just so happened that Mike Nguyen and Kevin Francis uh, had a firm called Silent Partner, and they were a, a broker in the industry for primarily telecom, but they started to do more and more data center work. So when I was running sales at United Layer, um, I met these guys because they were brokers and they said, hey, you know, we could probably find find some business for you guys and refer business to United Layer inside the data center because they actually worked out of the data center. Um, they worked in that same building. And so they kind of taught me the indirect channel. And so I started building the indirect channel for United Layer. And I learned the, the quote unquote broker industry and started finding out who the local real estate brokers were and the telecommunication brokers were. Um, and really started learning that very, very few of these individuals understood what was actually happening in the data center. They might have understood real estate, they might have understood network, and they knew that the data center was related, um, but they really didn't know how to consult with their customers and add value and explain in why any one data center was any different than another. Uh, or, you know, in the case of 200 Paul, you had a number of resellers within that property. So they would take down a substantial lease with Digital Realty Trust who owned the property, and then they would resell co-location services out of the property. So at United Later, we competed with about a half a dozen other co-location resellers in that property. Um, so it was me really educating Kevin um, and Mike at that time about what was going on in the industry that made it, you know, helped me solidify uh, in my brain that there was a need to add that kind of value within the indirect sales channel part of the, the company. And so the entrepreneurial brain that I had uh, started developing a business model around becoming a consultant and broker that really just focused on that core data center component and piece. Um, the reality is in 2009, I left United Layer and that's, it's a, Interesting story uh, in and of itself, uh, but I went to QTS because we had only two data centers at United Layer. We had one down in Los Angeles that we helped get started when I was there, and we had one up in San Francisco, but that was it. Um, and so I wanted to be able to help clients deploy wherever the heck they were looking for options across the country, and QTS happened to have a national footprint. At the time, they had a managed hosting and managed services division as well, and so that provided me a larger platform of and Rolodex of services that I could deliver to, to customers when I was talking with them. Um, and so when I went to QTS, uh, I learned that that same dynamic plays out even within a much larger organization um, and quickly became friends with some of the senior management at QTS and started asking them questions uh, about how the industry worked and how it played out for them as a, as a national company that had just received uh, substantial funding from General Atlantic. Uh, so this was right after they received about, I think it was the initial 50 million was deployed from General Atlantic. Um, so they were evolving as a company and just started asking other sales reps about what they knew about the industry and realized that there was a huge gap in education, even within the executives and the sales reps and the engineers about the industry at large. 
Um, and so, you know, QTS, even at that time, in fact, not many people know this, but they're, they're, they did not have an indirect sales channel. And so I, I helped get started the first indirect sales channel at QTS, which they eventually hired Frank Eagle uh, to come in and manage and run um, after, you know, I, I did what I did and just kind of did it without asking permission <laughs> and just started growing it and running it. And then they started realizing, oh, wow, there's opportunity here. And so they brought in someone who had experience doing that at a high level to, to manage it moving forward. Um, but it was all those different experiences that kind of helped me start crafting that business plan. I still, you know, I still have the original business plan from 2008, 2009, um, going through 2011, uh, that speaks to what I originally set out to create, which was a, a consulting firm around data center, uh, infrastructure that ties in security network applications and can speak holistically. So, um, you know, as I'm thinking through it, one of the other key mind-blowing uh, things that happened was understanding the relationship that IBM had with QTS. And I don't know if, if many people know this, but when IBM sells services to customers, more often than not, it's actually not IBM's own employees that are delivering those services to the end user. They're actually out in the market sourcing those services from providers like QTS, for example. So QTS had an agreement with IBM such that IBM could sell their services to the customer. Um, and when I started asking questions and learned that, that cust those customers were actually paying 2x what we were charging IBM, it just blew my mind. And I thought, you know, well, what if you could deliver the same type of consulting service that Accenture and IBM and Ernst & Young are delivering, but actually have that customer contract direct with the service provider? And instead of charging them 2x for those services, you make the referral fee and commission on the back end. Um, everyone's happy. You could even still play that project management role because you're still making money. But the customer knows that they're getting the best value for that service. Um, and so it was a lot, of those, a lot of those things and probably many more that I can't think of right now that helped me develop the business plan for what is Open Spectrum today. So <clears throat> tell me a little bit about the the evolution of the com the company. There's, it's interesting that uh, you know there's a couple of sort of products I guess that that you were uh, output that you're known for, the uh, you know collocation playbook of, of course, and and the and the I love data center podcast uh, among other things. Uh, you mentioned the importance of of education and and training. How did all that kind of like come together in uh, in the idea of of open spectrum and, and, and how did the, the company grow? So when I first started the firm, I was just doing that, that front end consulting for enterprise customers looking for managed services and data center uh, space. So as you can imagine, when I left QTS, uh, I was the, the top retail Co-location sales rep in the company. I just won a big award. Everyone thought I was insane for leaving because I was about to make a ridiculous amount of money that year. Um, and I left in July. So I left halfway through the year and left a lot of money on the table. Um, but I left because uh, I saw that need in the market and I, and I needed to go fulfill that need. And so when I left, I had a lot of my existing customers. Uh, when I said, hey, I'm hanging out my own shingle. I can now help you guys, you know, you know, deploy services globally. Uh, 
and or regionally that are outside the scope of the immediate QTS facilities. I had nearly a dozen of them uh, contact me within a week and say, hey, Sean, you know, I'm looking for infrastructure in Sydney, Australia. I'm looking for infrastructure in Dublin, Ireland. Uh, I'm looking for infrastructure in uh, Chicago, uh, Texas, you know, all over the place. And so that instantly got me to work. And so I started, you know, consulting with these firms and helping them understand what their options were, building out total cost of ownership models, um, putting together some detailed reports that spoke to, you know, who who the different players were in the market uh, and the value each one of those players was going to bring to the table for them, uh, so that they can think critically and take their, you know, most of these folks are engineers that I'm working with, and I wanted them to understand the marketplace, uh, leveraging hard facts and hard data. And so that's what got me to work. And I spent about a year doing that type of work and building up a nice book of business. But I found that a number of the service providers that I was working with, uh, because I was, you know, a a teeny tiny one man shop, um, you know, I wasn't pulling my business underneath a large master agency that was doing a ton of volume. They didn't take me very seriously. Uh, and even though the channel manager would say, look, Sean, we love your business because we're closing one out of every two deal that you that you feed us. Whereas with the the Intellisys and Avance and the rest of the masters in the in the community, you know, they maybe close one out of every 12 or one out of every 15 deals that they get access to. And that's, you know, you can ask them, they'll straight up tell you that same story. But, you know, Sean, you only feed us two deals a year, whereas these guys are feeding us uh, 50 to 100 deals a year. And so the volume that we get from them is much different. And as a result, the people that they would tag to my accounts were not very knowledgeable. And so I would have sales reps that may only be a couple months into working at the company who didn't know how to sell internally. They didn't know the specifics of their own facilities such that, and I you know, I hate to say that because it sounds like I'm patting myself on the back, but I was giving better tours of these companies' facilities than their own sales reps were giving of their own properties. And so I finally went to a couple of these providers and I said, look, I want to sell your services. You guys have great facilities. You've, you fulfill a need in the market that I know I can help. Uh, but you're, you keep tagging these sales reps who don't know what they're selling to my deals and they're making it harder for me to sell. And they're adding more friction in this process. Um, can you let me train your people? And uh, you know, they all of them were like, yeah, sure. And so I started holding training events and I just took the, the volume of knowledge that I had and I started documenting it and I created a two day curriculum where day one, we're inside of a classroom, walking through the T's and C's of the industry, who the players are, the different pricing schemes, what makes any one company different from another, um, what's inside these facilities, why it matters. And then day two, we would tour through different properties and, you know, touring through, a, you know, formerly DuPont Fabros, now Digital Realty. But touring through a, a DuPont, touring through a, a QTS-esque or a, you know, a Flexential or a, a mid-market co-location play that also has some managed services, and then touring through at the time in the Bay Area, we had a company called Layer 42, which was you know, two facilities that, that these former uh, above-net engineers had built and managed themselves. And you know, it was owner-operator. Uh, run, they were engineers, and it was just a different feel, right? So you go through three very distinctly different types of data centers that have three distinctly different types of ownership structures going after three different, you know, for the most part, types of customers really helps people wrap their head around the fact that not all data centers are created equal. 
not all data center uh, providers are created equal. They all have a different use case and niche in the market. And so I did about two of these uh, trainings for free. And every single person, with the exception of maybe two, uh, who were basically sales reps that were working the entire time on their phones and being disruptive <laughs> for the training, to be totally frank, um, came away saying, this was amazing. I've learned more in the last two days than I've learned in the last eight years working in this industry. Um, you know, we have no training like this within our organization. Uh, you know, I'd love to have some of my colleagues come to the future training events that you're hosting. When are they? And so that's when, again, the entrepreneur in me said, holy crap, there's probably a business model here. And if I can get people to pay me to travel across the country and get even more experience and even have, have even more knowledge about what's happening in the market, that's a win-win-win all the way around. And so that's what really jump-started the training arm company. Um, and as my wife will attest, I spent many a weekend away from you know her and my family in my office writing the content for what is now the data center collocation industry playbook uh, on its fourth edition, soon to have the fifth edition rolling out here. Um, and just putting all this content together, uh, formatting it, which is a major bitch. Uh, it takes just as long to format the book as it does to create the content for the book, uh, but literally built it from scratch. And so that's where the training arm of the business kind of developed from. And so with the, the co-location playbook, it, it feels like you've pulled together just a, an, an incredible uh, uh, range of, of resources to kind of help folks. Uh, now, now that you've got that together, what role does that play in how you work with clients and, and, and folks in the industry? So it, it basically forces both myself and our company to stay uh, on top of what the heck is going on in the marketplace. Right? Um, and I had, a, I had an incident where I was competing for a deal with a bank um, and there were two other quote unquote consulting firms that were competing for the, the business. They wanted to build a disaster recovery site. Um, and I had the client, it was the, the CFO for a company for this bank, tell me straight up that the reason why they're going to work with Jones Lang LaSalle, uh, or it may have been Ernst and Young, it was one of the two was because that the content that they provided was a lot, quote unquote, sexier than the content that I provided them. <laughs> and I just laughed. And I was like, dude, if all it's going to take is for me to create sexy content, give me 48 hours and I'll take my existing content. I'll bring it to a designer and I'll have them make it sexy. <laughs> and, and, you know, would you reconsider? And he's like, you know, at this point, it's a little too late. We've already made a decision. We're going to be moving forward with Ernst Young or JLL. And the guy may have just been making up an excuse, but he lit a fire under my ass. Um, I hate being told no. I hate losing. I'm a very competitive person by nature. And so instantly I called up a, a developer and a design designer friend of mine. And I said, hey, can you take this content and can you make it look sexy? <laughs> and so that was what got the, you know, the I think it was the second or third version of the book. Um, looks a lot different than the first version of the book. Uh, whereas the first version is a lot of text heavy. I had a lot of Excel spreadsheets and databases that I was wor working off of. And so I started making things sexier uh, as a result of that and started learning that, you know, marketing at the end of the day uh, is, is very instrumental in how people perceive your company. And so I went about trying to make uh, all of our content, which, you know, I still feel is extremely relevant, look as sexy as possible so that 
no one can use that as an excuse. And people, <laughs> so people can't say, well, JLL's content is far sexier than yours, Sean. Sorry, we, we can't work with you. Um, well, so, it's funny how the, the whole sexy thing kind of matters and comes up in a lot of elements of the, the business. Uh, I, I've been at a couple of these industry conferences where the discussion comes up about, uh, about the future of the industry and about staffing and how we, you know, how we get new people interested in it, particularly uh, young folks uh, who are thinking about career options. And, you know, there's lots of industries and businesses out there that have, you know, clearly articulated sort of, you know, sexy pitches for here's, here's what you get when you come and do this. Uh, data centers, uh, partly because uh, folks have been so busy just, uh, you know, building the internet, uh, uh, it maybe took less time uh, initially to kind of think about the the packaging and and marketing of of some of this. But uh, you know, sometimes it it really does matter. You know, just my experience was that you know I built a website in in 2005 and built another in 2015, and and the world had completely changed, and and you had to think of that, about that in terms of social media, video, audio, there's all sorts of things, as, as you well know, out there in terms of uh, how you sort of display expertise to the marketplace uh, and also underscore the importance of, of the work that gets done in this industry. So uh, uh, it's uh, it's interesting how the whole bit of, uh, there's times I think individually where, you know, data centers being sexy doesn't, uh, uh, seem like something that you go to the top of the uh, other priority list, but then in, in terms of actually effectiveness, it it, it kind of matters. Yeah, and you know I liken that to, or you know I rationalize that to the reality that most people who own and run these these data center companies are finance guys or engineers, right, or a combination of the two, right. And so right. most most, if not you know, I can't say all, but most don't really understand sales and marketing. Um, they kind of understand that, you know, they view it as a necessary evil, uh, but they would prefer not to have to deal with sales and marketing. Um, it's a rare, uh, you know, owner of a data center company who really values and understands why marketing matters and how to build a sales culture that isn't cutthroat, um, such that you're constantly churning people in and out of the organization, um, and, you know, treating people like pawns. Uh, so that's, you know, I, I understand that. And, you know, it, for better or worse, you know, it's, it's the rationalization, at least I've come to as to why it is that our industry has, you know, <laughs> done a poor job of the, the PR side of selling themselves um, and pooling talent. Let me ask you about something specific there, simply because this is something that I see in, in practice and I think has changed over the years. You, you talked about giving tours of data centers and how you present uh, the um, the whole business uh, that goes on inside the data center have uh, what kind of changes or, or have you seen in the way that uh, data centers are designed to consider the fact that you're going to have people walking through and through them and, and touring them and the way that that companies uh, present the data centers on on tours has in your experience has that changed much yeah definitely so um you know, for better or worse, one of the reasons why Equinix, I, I believe, has been so successful is because they truly invested in the marketing side of their business. Uh, yes, they invested in their facilities. Yes, they picked up some very key key facilities and key markets around the world. Uh, 
Um, but they knew from a product and marketing perspective that they needed to dominate. And so they threw a lot of money into that department. Uh, and what that meant was any Equinix data center you walk into anywhere in the world will look pretty much the same. They have the same entry. They have the same foyer. They have the same lighting schemes. Um, mm-hmm. Their knocks look very similar, right? And so it's a, it's a consistent experience for that customer. So you may walk into a data center that is, um, you know, the one that they've got in, in Ashburn, Virginia, uh, you know, Equinix VA1, right? And VA2, which are tier three, uh, you know, built to withstand, you know, all kinds of disasters, uh, major internet exchanges for the East Coast, let alone the world. And then you walk into one of their properties that they bought that was built in 1995 that's probably tier two at best. And yet the experience walking through that property is exactly the same. They look the same. So mentally and psychologically, people don't fully dissociate the two two data centers, right? They think they're all equal, that they're all completely top-notch, that they're all tier three, that they all have the same redundancy, that they all have the same density capabilities and internet exchange capabilities when that's not actually the case, right? And it used to be that most data center companies just had, you know, flow working in the security desk who would sign you in and look at your ID. uh, And then you'd walk into the data center floor. Uh, You may have had a badge that you needed or may have been escorted, but there wasn't very much thought into the experience, right? that customer experience as they're coming through that property. And yet the reality is first impressions are everything, right? And it's a rare buyer who really understands the complexities and the detailed nature of the security, the density, uh, the redundancy from both the cooling and electrical perspective, uh, you know, the team that's working on site, which they may never even meet, um, how critical all those important, those pieces are, And if one looks like every other and they have a great experience walking through one of them, they're going to assume that they're all the same, right? And so I've seen more and more companies take seriously that customer experience uh, since I started back in, you know, 2007 in the industry. Um, And it's, it's been almost ubiquitous now for any major data center owner operator to add that as part of their, um, their product strategy and their rollout is to make sure that they have a consistent experience and marketing and PR experience for their customers and their facilities. So I wanted to kind of go back to the narrative of sort of your career for, for just a bit. And then uh, I have a number of questions just about your take on uh, things we're seeing in the data center industry. So uh, I know, uh, Recently, you've, you've kind of uh, done some new things at uh, Open Spectrum. Uh, I was thinking maybe you could kind of just give, an, uh, give us an overview of, uh, of uh, what's the latest and, uh, and uh, where things go from here. Yeah, so exciting times for sure um, within the organization. You know, early on, what I envisioned for Open Spectrum was to start uh, almost a master agency for data center and managed services. And so, you know, similar to what Danny has built at Colotrack, who, who I also interviewed uh, a couple months back, um, I wanted to build a similar type of agency 
that was really highly focused on the the technical acumen in the space, not just holding the contracts, but also providing value uh, in front of customers. And what I learned as I was successful growing the company is how complex that back office is. And I'll give, you know, I have to give a shout out to uh, Brian Miller um, over at Bridgepoint Technologies, who's out of California in the Bay Area, who runs a a very successful master agency out of there. And his partner, um, who I, I started doing work with early on, and they kept saying, Sean, this back office piece of the company isn't as easy as, as you may think it is. Um, you know, as you grow, you're going to see and understand the value of having someone who can manage that, that back office operations, the HR, the accounts receivable, accounts payable. Um, it's, not, it's not as simple as you may think. And you know, the entrepreneur in me was like, oh, I can just hire someone to take care of that for me. Um, versus you know, the way the industry works is if you are clearing through a master agency, that master agency, due to the volume that they do, typically receive a much higher commission or, or percentage of the referral fee than just a one-off um, agent such as myself at that time who would hold a contract. Um, and so if they have to give, uh, if you as an agent have to give 20% of whatever that referral fee is, so let's say it's 15% commission. Um, on a sale and you have to give 20% commission, that means you have to give three points or 3% back to that master. But if you as an independent agent get a contract and the best you can get is 10%, there's a net gain. So you're still making an additional two points or 12%, giving 3% back to the house because there's a 15% total referral fee versus just making 10 and keeping all of it, right? Um, it's worth it for you to clear with the master agent and let them manage that back office because A, you're making more money and B, they're handling all the back office logistics. Uh, but for better or worse, I'm that kind of entrepreneur that has to put my finger in the light socket and get electrocuted, not once, but probably two or three times until I learn, you know what? I probably shouldn't put my finger in that light socket again. It's going to hurt. Um, and so, you know, my conversations with them were like, yeah, I get it, but you know, I need to at least give it a try. So I gave it a try for a number of years, and then I realized this hurts. This is very painful. I didn't leave corporate America to start a company um, doing a lot of the work now, managing people to manage a back office that is painful for me. It's it's you know it's things that I need. I knew I needed to do to grow as a professional, um, but I learned the hard way that that is definitely work that I don't want to be having a piece of moving forward. So upon that realization about three years ago, um, and I started the firm in July of 2011, so around the 2014 timeframe, I started going to different master agencies and started saying, hey, you can take all this education and training that I have, and you can empower and enable all of your agents. And I will push my whole book of business underneath your master agency. But I'd love for you guys to consider leveraging me and my firm. Uh, as a solution architecture, sales engineering overlay uh, for your agents as they come across complex deals. And every single master agency that I talk to, and I talk to, you know, I could list probably about eight or nine of them uh, across the country. And I traveled all over meeting with these folks, said, you know what? We get what you're doing, Sean. We love what you're doing, but we have a guy in house, and our one guy in house uh, is basically our overlay. Uh, and we're very transaction focused, you know, spending three, six months to consult with the client to help them understand their needs before you get a transaction done is not really our business model. We want to facilitate transactions. 
And so I was banging my head against the wall um, when we came across this microcorp company in Atlanta. And it was right before I actually moved out to the East Coast from the Bay Area. So that was in 2000, um, 2015. Um, had a conversation with Phil Keenan, the president of Microcorp. And he started saying, yep, I get it, Sean. I'm, I'm all in. This makes perfect sense. And to be honest, I didn't take him seriously because I'd heard that from a lot of these other masters. And a lot of them simply wanted us to clear our business underneath them. And when the rubber met the road, they never really adopted the training. They never really adopted the component that was really educating and empowering the agents to add more value in the conversations with their customers. Um, so eventually I fly down to meet face-to-face with Phil and I bring in Todd Smith, who's down in Houston on my team. And I brought in Todd Portain, who was on my marketing team. And within two minutes of the conversation we were having with Phil, we had a presentation that we had worked, you know, two weeks on. He cut off the presentation and was like, I get it. Like how many times do I need to tell you, Sean, you don't need to keep selling me on this. I get it. I'm on board. Let's set up a JV. You're going to educate and train all of our agents. We're going to build a division within Microcorp that provides this, you know, empowerment for them to, you know, elevate their businesses beyond the traditional telecom. Um, We'd love to support you on the back office. So you don't have to deal with that part of the business that you hate doing. Let's make this happen. And that was literally two and a half years ago. And so we started taking baby steps to make that happen and started throwing some large training events, started slowly moving some of my, my business underneath Microcorp and really playing together and seeing if there was, this would work long-term and, uh, realize that it, it's it's working and it's it's a positive experience on both sides. And I really feel that the JV that we've set up between Microcorp and Open Spectrum, which now runs Cloud Elements, which is the cloud and hosting division within Microcorp, is kind of like the model for you know should be in business schools is like why you do JVs and how how to create a successful JV. Um, so that's kind of some of the new and exciting stuff that's been going on uh, working with Microcorp and enabling their two thousand agents across the country, but primarily in the Southeast to, to grow and elevate their business to um, do more than just traditional TEM or telecom or UCAS or uh, contact center as a service, but get really into the security space, the data center space, the hosting space. And so we're rebranding a lot of our content from Open Spectrum to this cloud elements, uh, Microcorp cloud elements division for them to go out and leverage it to go be successful with their customers. Great. Well, congratulations on uh, on accomplishing all that. Um, in terms of looking at cloud elements and, and understanding the sort of cloud landscape going forward, um, it's been a time of enormous growth for the data center industry and, and cloud computing in general. Some of the numbers are kind of mind-boggling. So I thought I'd shift gears a little bit and and ask you some questions about what you see happening in the industry, and uh, it seems like cloud is the the perfect you know place to start. Um, what's your take on where we're at in the the cloud transition, and what the road ahead looks like, and how uh, the companies that uh, that that you're working with and and Microcorp is working with. Um, how this all you know translates? Uh, what's what's your sense of what things are going to look like? It's it's funny for me because I back when I started the company, I was touring around. I, I worked with a lot of startups back then, and I still do. Um, but I had a uh, a deck and a presentation that was about thirty minutes that I would give in different co working spaces, and um, 
uh, entrepreneurial incubators around the Bay Area, up and down the West Coast. And it was called There Is No Cloud. <laughs> and it was me trying to get people to understand that this word cloud is meaningless. <laughs> it, it has no meaning. Uh, and it means so many things to so many different people that we should just stop using it altogether. I tried desperately, desperately. Um, and it was, uh, there's, a, there's a great, um, there's a great quote from the uh, founder and CEO of Oracle, Larry Ellison, where an analyst asked him early on of the quote unquote cloud days. Uh, so, you know, is Oracle at all afraid of the cloud and like how cloud computing may affect uh, Oracle as a business? And his response straight up to the dude was, what the hell is cloud computing? Like, what the fuck do you think cloud computing actually is? Uh, cloud computing is whatever you want to claim it is, right? So it's, you know, we've created this new word uh, and everyone's using it. And there's no industry that's more fashion driven, uh, fashion driven other than women's fashion than IT. And so IT is now latched on this word cloud and they're using it for all things to mean all things. Um, so first off, I want to say, I hate this word cloud computing. Uh, unfortunately, it's been beaten so hard into me that because of sheer sheer power of the marketing and the messaging and how much money has been invested by AWS and, and other players in the market that it's now become you know the word that you kind of have to use. Uh, so that's my rant on cloud computing. I apologize. Um, but No, that's quite okay. And, and I think it's interesting, given Larry Ellison's uh, history with the phrase, uh, when you look at what Oracle's uh, doing in terms of marketing and cloud infrastructure, so you're not alone in in deciding to uh, uh, you know drink a little bit of the Kool Aid and and, right. and work with the terminology. Yeah, I mean, Larry even said he's like, so what are we going to do with cloud computing? We'll we'll change our marketing. You know, we'll put some cloud bubbles around some of our logos right. and, and some right. stuff that we're doing. That's what we'll do. Um, but to answer your question, so. Cloud computing. Um, the reality is Microsoft and Amazon um, and you know IBM and Google and you know Oracle now, they are the fastest growing, largest consumers, right? Of all the net new data center capacity that's coming online. You know, you, you can agree to that, right? Sure. So the reality is that people are leveraging these services for more and more and more. Um, if you're a brand new business and you haven't built out your business model and you don't know for every, you know, thousand new customers on your website, what that's going to equate to from a Ram CPU storage network capacity perspective, leveraging a hosted service that's going to charge you on demand for those services makes complete sense. Um, leveraging a, a hosting company because cloud computing is really just a flavor of hosting, right? You're right. leveraging someone right. else's infrastructure. So leveraging that hosted infrastructure for like a disaster recovery instance um, makes a lot of sense. So you don't have to buy all the hardware. You don't have to manage it. It's there if you need it. It's kind of an insurance policy. Makes perfect sense. And I think the market is evolving in that they're starting to understand what the use case is for that type of on-demand infrastructure. That putting your entire eggs into the basket of an AWS might not make the most sense. Um, but it depends on the business. It depends on the business model. Um, we see, in fact, a lot of companies that are pulling their infrastructure out of Azure, out of AWS, out of Google, once they start to realize that they have some static, consistent workloads, and they're paying a premium to have these workloads sitting inside this quote-unquote cloud environment. 
um, and they're in shared infrastructure if you're in a lot of these clouds. So you could have your own private dedicated infrastructure that might be managed by someone else. So that doesn't mean that you have to own it and control it, but it'd be private dedicated to you managed by someone else. So if that's the case, is that called cloud? You know, a lot of cases it is called cloud. So just because you don't own it, it's called cloud. So cloud now encompasses anything and everything that is not, I own the server and I have it in a data center that I own and control, which means almost everything is cloud and everything is migrating into the cloud world. Um, I think cloud computing is going to continue to grow. And I, you know, it's, it's great to see Azure and AWS and Google and IBM and all these players succeeding and doing well because they're specialists in very specific areas. So for a healthcare company, for example, to uh, start to build out their own infrastructure and manage and control it all themselves, to me, it makes no sense. You should find the specialists that can do this across a number of companies who can be adept and on top of all the security and compliance, uh, who can have a lower cost of ownership to deploy and manage all this infrastructure. Um, And that's the case for a lot of different industries where owning and controlling and managing a team that is a specialist in your infrastructure and your applications uh, makes little sense these days. It makes far more sense to have specialists who can give you your own private dedicated instance, but it's not on your uh, you're not on the hook to be the ones replacing you as a customer, are not on the hook to be replacing the hard drives and replacing um, the servers and trying to stay up on what the new technologies are for virtualization and disaster recovery and whatnot. You know, let that be the problem of someone who does that all the time. Um, so I, I think that it's a good thing that cloud computing is continuing to advance. Um, you know, I I've even have customers who went touring through data centers will say to me, don't you think data centers are going to become obsolete with the advent of cloud computing and the growth of cloud computing. And I kind of scratch my head and think to myself, how much of an engineer is this person really, if they don't quite understand that all this infrastructure has to sit in some kind of a data center somewhere. Um, It it just might have a different name on the front of it. Right. Exactly. Um, So I think, you know, the cloud is a good thing. The cloud sits in a data center. It's what's led to uh, the growth. I mean, data center industry as a segment of the real estate investment trust, um, uh, uh, designation, right, of, of a company who are designated as REITs. Um, the data center com- component of that is the fastest growing, highest EBITDA, um, highest growth rate year over year than any other REIT. And so there's so much money flooding into the space. Um, and so, you know, our mantra here at Open Spectrum is we simply want to navigate people to truth. And we want to leverage hard facts, hard data, uh, so that people are making accurate decisions and it's still to this day kind of just makes me scratch my head and want to put makes me want to put my head through the wall looking at so many companies who uh, are throwing money into the data center space without doing proper due diligence. Um, but anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll well, be quiet. Well, let now. me ask about that a little <laughs> bit. I'm, I'm curious on your take because you, uh, you've always been focused on the, the sort of business piece of this uh, and uh and have so many conversations with folks about uh, how business is actually conducted here, um, both in terms of the impact of cloud and in the growth of the data center sector. You mentioned the data center REITs and the uh, the publicly held large real estate investment trusts uh, that have traditionally been sort of the big players in wholesale data center space, the data center suites, uh, and to a lesser extent, maybe you know, the retail co-location, certainly Equinix, uh, 
on that front. But there's been a lot of investment interest in the industry, uh, which has led to some new companies coming out. Uh, you know, we're at a point where there's any number of executives who have some, you know, decent experience in the industry and are, you know, available to work with some of these private equity firms and folks who have money uh, and would very much like to get into this space. Uh, the awareness of the performance of the public REITs has certainly seemed to have uh, penetrated the, uh, you know, investing uh, sphere. So the question that that always raises is, you know, does this simply allow the data center industry to keep up with all the demand for new data center space, whether it's from, you know, cloud players or just people, uh, you know, enterprises who want to have the third-party hosting experience rather than having to build it and have their their guys operate that. Um, is all this uh, new investment and, and new companies just needed to keep up, or is this the kind of uh, a case where um, maybe it gets a little bit frothy and, and you have some folks who maybe, you know, don't know what they're uh, doing as well that, you know, is this, you know, smart money? Or are we, you know, what's your take of where we're at in terms of uh, uh, the investment in the industry and the, the kind of uh, sort of platforms uh, folks are creating to take advantage of that? Uh, yeah, so that's a wide, that's a very broad question, but I'll I'll try to hit it on the levels that I can speak to. And to be clear, you know, I, I'm not a trained financial analyst, right? right. Um, I look at market realities through the conversations I have with customers, through the conversations I have with the service providers themselves, when we do trainings with them and when we do deals with them. I look at, you know, what types of deals are going on in the market and how are certain companies uh, evolving and or not evolving to address those needs? Um, I see a, a very distinct uh, bifurcation occurring in the marketplace where certain providers are very much now focusing almost exclusively on the hyperscale type of business. It tends to be those that are publicly traded REITs. Publicly traded REITs are looking at for every dollar that they spend, where are they getting the highest return on their money? And that's for them, they found that it is the, the large wholesale business. So they're going after that large wholesale business and they're fighting tooth and nail to win as much of that business as possible. Um, the other part of the business are the non-publicly traded REITs who view the world a little bit differently. They don't want to have a, a massive contract with Amazon or with um, Google or Facebook or any of these big companies. They prefer to have lots of relationships with a lot of smaller companies that are going to pay a higher per KW price point um, and their margins are going to be higher. Now, you know, being the non-financial analyst, I have not spent the time to dig into those very specifics but I can tell you, I've been having this debate since I started the industry. Um, there's a, a gentleman who I haven't talked to in years, but I remember sitting down with Jameson Agrazi, who was over at Coresight back in the day, right. when Coresight was struggling with this very same dynamic. Do we want to have fewer customers that are buying much more capacity from us? Is it more profitable at the end of the day for us to do that? Or do we want to have a lot more customers that are paying us more money? Because a customer who's paying you more money, if you have more of them, simply means that you might have higher margins, but 
you need the backend infrastructure to support all those customers, right? You need to have the additional sales reps. You need the sales engineering. You need the, um, the call center support staff to field the calls as they come in, as customers have a, a need for racking, stacking, cabling, pushing buttons inside the data center. Much different type of business than your traditional real estate wholesale model, right? Um, Digital Realty, for example, also had that same dynamic playing out where they said, hey, we're going to start a retail division of the company. Uh, You know, being a large real estate firm, the largest data center real estate firm in the world at the time, they thought, well, it shouldn't be too difficult for us to build out a retail co-location program as well. But they learned the hard way that it's really not that simple. It's not that easy. Um, And so they acquired that talent from Telex for multiple reasons. You know, that deal made a lot of sense for that company. Um, And so what I see is companies making very specific decisions that they are going to be a large wholesale provider, uh, meaning the customer for the most part dictates the terms of how the inside of that data center suite is going to look like. Uh, they're going to bring in the electrical engineers, the contractors to design and build the suite out, the cooling infrastructure and whatnot, the redundancy. It's kind of build the spec within the, the model uh, or the, the campus of one of the large data center REITs versus the co-location real, uh, uh, retail co-location model, which is very, you know, we have these products for you. Um, here's the rack configuration. Here's the cage configurations that we have available. Which of these work for you? You're going to deploy into a pre-configured space. Um, so I, I don't have an answer as to which is best or better. I think both of them work for different types of customers. Um, and so more and more of the, the regional hosting companies, I think, do really well working with the retail co-location providers who can manage network, who can provide a more full suite of services, but obviously the large uh, scale businesses who have internal teams that can manage all that infrastructure, all they need is the raw space and power. Um, They don't want to deal with the contracts for the contractors that will manage the generators and the UPS systems and the cooling systems and um, the taxes that have to do with the real estate and blah, blah, blah. So they'll easily go work with a digital or Cyrus one or QTS in some circumstances because they just take care of all that piece of it for them. Um, so that's that's kind of how I see things playing out. But I would love to, you know, one of the next interviews I'm going to be doing is with one of these financial analysts to really dig into the weeds around those numbers and try to figure out, you know, what's going on there. Yeah, because I think there's a, a, there's a lot of interest, certainly at the macro level, about, you know, what that all means to the industry and how that filters down to you know, what sort of facilities and, and uh, resources are available to folks. Um, one of the questions that you always like to ask uh, on the podcast is about disruption. Uh, so I'll, in turning the tables, put this back to you. What's one of the more disruptive technologies that, that you've seen within the data center industry? Uh, great question. So, and I have to, nah, you know, I'm not going to be guarded. I'm just going to be blunt. Um, I, I truly believe that a number of the internet exchanges in the country uh, are straight up extorting their clients. And I'm, you know, I'm just going to put that on the table. Um, and I think I had this conversation in, in a podcast uh, that will have already been out by the time this, this comes out uh, when we talk about OpenIX and how OpenIX has evolved. Um, but if you look at the internet exchange model in Europe, 
they run them as co-ops. So people share in the cost to deploy and interconnect uh, networks with one another inside facilities. And I see certain providers in the marketplace who know that they have certain facilities where uh, that are very um, that have high demand, and so they charge very egregious rates to their customers. And the concept is, well, we're saving our customers so much money by having the ability to have that uh, capability within our facilities. But the reality is network cost is dropping year over year. And so with the network cost dropping and the cross-connect fees and port fees increasing, you're making it less and less economically viable for companies to pay those fees inside these interconnection facilities. And so the advent of um, uh, packet fabric, Megaport, um, Epsilon, uh, there's a handful of companies that are creating basically these network platforms where they can meet you where you're at, at your office or at a data center that may not be inside one of these internet exchanges and give you access to uh, any internet exchange across the country or around the world. Or they'll give you access to tap into a SD-WAN provider uh, that will allow you to uh, more strategically manage your network uh, uh, quality of service and SLAs uh, all from a single platform. Or they'll give you a direct connect into the AWS or a Google or a direct connect to someone like um, Salesforce so that you don't, you're not traversing the public internet in order to gain access to Salesforce. You can actually have a private uh, connection into Salesforce. Those are the companies that I see are completely disrupting this internet exchange model. But I'm going to take it to an even deeper level for you, Rich, and, I, and I'd love to have your feedback on this. You know, as an American, as someone who works with InfraGuard and kind, kind of, uh, you know, sees what's going on, InfraGuard being the public-private partnership between the FBI and the private sector, and looking at cybersecurity and how um, you know Russia and Syria and uh, North Korea and all kinds of actors are extorting uh, and sucking billions of dollars worth of um, intellectual property out of America um, pretty much every month at this point. I view, I view our ability to compete on a global scale as an American company diminished by the stance and the financial models of these internet exchanges that are charging substantially high port fees and cross-connect fees inside these facilities. It, in, from my perspective, again, being very blunt, from my perspective, I see it as extortion and I see it as limiting innovation. So the higher cost it is for people to truly participate in this network exchange, the less likely it is for companies to want to innovate in, uh, in the marketplace. And so the key disruption that I see occurring in the marketplace is going to be around that economic model. And I think, um, you know, I, I honestly got to hope and pray that, that that internet exchange model evolves and changes to be far more uh, co-op based than the, um, you know, I'm a capitalist, so I'm not saying capitalism is, is bad in any way, shape or form here, but I think that we've reached a point where we are now charging obscene fees for uh, cross connects and for port fees, which is stifling innovation in this country and it needs to change. Well, I think you raise a, an interesting point and I think the observation I would make on that 
is that any time you get something in uh, Internet infrastructure that uh, is entrenched and yet makes business more difficult, uh, it's not going to last forever. People innovate around that. Uh, and take a look at, uh, you know, networking hardware as an example. You know, there was a time when, you know, Cisco ruled the world. I remember seeing, you know, James Hamilton from, who was at Microsoft then, do a presentation a few years back saying, you know, the data center network is in my way. That was the title of the presentation. And it was about the time that you saw things like OpenFlow and the open source, uh, you know, uh, networking protocols coming out. And it created another option that people began building around. And now it's a very different story. Uh, if you look at, at the uh, at data center networking hardware, it's, uh, many things have changed. The, uh, you know, the ability to, for the largest players, the cloud players, to you know, give weight and gravity to, to new and innovative solutions there uh, tends to be a game changer. So I, th I think, you know, in terms of Internet exchanges, it's one of those areas that there's been a lot of focus on. I think there's a pretty high awareness of the, uh, the problem that you're illustrating. And, uh, and I would go back to, you know, the, uh, the companies that you talked about in the sort of SDN, the cloud networking space, uh, you know, Packet Fabric and uh, – and it's it sort yeah, of brethren yeah. in that, that sector. I'm fascinated to see what's going to happen with those companies and what their path is going to be going forward. Um, do they all continue to forge ahead independently and, and build momentum? Uh, are they the kind of thing that, you know, becomes an acquisition target for people with other business models or agendas in the data center space? I think that's a really interesting uh, Know, focal point going forward. Uh, a, a number of them seem to have some either venture or private equity uh, backing. Others are uh, backed by, uh, you know, a much more concentrated uh, set of um, you know, individuals or investors, and, and that tends to make a difference in those sort of things. But, uh, you know, I think the internet space has been something where it's been very hard to maintain, you know, these, these dominant infrastructures without uh, people starting to innovate around it. And I think we've hit a stretch of time in the, the industry where there's so much that's new that's going on. Uh, I'm curious on your take on, on this. You know, at, at Data Center Frontier, we track a lot of the new technologies that are impacting data centers and where they're going to be built, like artificial intelligence, um, virtual reality, the, the rise in video, the Internet of Things. There's all sorts of new stuff coming down the pipeline, and uh, it seems that uh, uh, that the world is is changing pretty quickly. And the next five to ten years uh, is going to be a time where there's lots of pressures on infrastructure to meet new kinds of workloads and support new kinds of uh, uh, new kinds of devices and technologies. And uh, you know, so. Uh, I think there's a lot of potential for an industry that used to be pretty conservative, largely because of the focus on uptime, which tends to make you uh, stick to the things that work and that you know are going to work when the whole enterprise is riding on it, uh, to, to one where there's, you know, innovation uh, has to drive some elements of the business forward to just to keep up. I mean, 
you know, that that to me seems that uh, it's it's not something that can stand stand still, and you can't fight the future, and the, the future's got a lot going on. Yeah, for sure. And, and from a facility standpoint, you know, I think there's some very interesting things going on from a you know how companies are managing uh, their costs, right? So uh, cooling, for example, and just the general operational costs and how people can offset. Um, some of the costs by taking the heat that's generated from the data center and leveraging that to create uh, energy that they could then resell. You know, there's there's lots of interesting stuff from that perspective as well um, that I think are interesting, right? Um, but I think from a core, you know, what is truly going to be disruptive? That disruptive component for me takes me straight to where the most friction is, as as you aptly. Uh, pointed to, you create a lot of friction. And when you create a lot of friction, what you do is you create alternatives or, or you have people thinking about alternatives. And so I'm very interested in what those, you know, the entrepreneur and me is looking at what the alternatives are uh, in the areas where there's the highest amount of friction uh, in the industry. And for me, I think it's, it's, it's that internet exchange. And I'll, you know, I'll point to someone like neutrality, um, and if you haven't heard of neutrality, I know you have, but, uh, if the listeners haven't heard of neutrality, I would look them up. They have a lot of the internet exchanges. They've acquired a lot of the internet exchanges in tier two markets and tier three markets across the country. Um, and they have a zero cross connect fee model. Why? Because they're in it for the power and space. They know that they can make great margins on just the power and space component in the data center. And they want to encourage and facilitate carriers to connect and, and interconnect with one another as well as customers inside their facilities. Um, now the, the flip side of that is I'm very concerned with, you know, as you mentioned, the private equity money that's backing a lot of these companies because QTS, for example, used to have a policy of not charging cross connect fees and then private equity money came into the business and they brought in a new chief uh, sales and marketing officer who looked at the business model and said, we're, we're losing money and we're not making money on all these cross connects that we should be. Uh, and he had a background coming from uh, a business that sold a telex and was charging cross connect fees. And so they, they implemented a charge for copper and fiber cross connects, whereas we didn't have that before. And so quite literally the sales pitch that we had as an organization changed from, we are a family owned, family owned business run business we want to help our customers. We want to encourage and enable our customers to do business. We don't want to charge cross-connect fees because we feel that that's extortion to overnight. Uh, yeah, I know we've been saying that for the last five years, but uh, we have a new ownership now and they're going to start charging these fees. So you know, I look at that dynamic of some of the backers of some of these companies and simply say, how is the sales pitch and the business model going to change once new money comes into these companies? Um, because the sales pitch works only so long as you can actually back up what you're saying with tangible reality. Um, so that's, that's a concern, <laughs> a concern of mine. So one of the questions you always ask, uh, the folks that sit down with you for the Isle of Data Centers podcast is what do you wish you would have known when you were starting out? In the industry? Uh, what's that for you? That's, that's a tough one for me because I tried not to live my life with um, regrets. 
you know, I wouldn't be the man that I am today without having to experience a lot of the the BS and just the the results of a lot of the bad <laughs> bad decisions I've made in my life, uh, both personal and and uh, you know professional. Um, but I was actually funny enough. I was just having this conversation the other day. I I, I wish I could go back. Uh, in the room with some of the conversations I had with people early on in my career and had they really not just kind of off the cuff or like ad hoc been adamant about what it really takes to run a back office of a business, uh, you know, doing what I do and the, the financials of it, um, you know, the managing people, um, you know, how difficult it, it can be to manage people. Uh, I, I wonder if anyone really said, sat down and had that conversation with me. And if I just brushed them off as, you know, the know-it-all that I probably was at that time. Um, or if I, you know, if they really ran those numbers, because I, f- I feel like if someone really sat me down and walked me through it all, I probably would have made a decision to do what I've done a lot sooner. But the flip side of that is it took me going through everything I did to finally find the partner in Microcorp that I have that, you know, they are a family run business. They value values. They have a very high ethics as a culture, as an organization. Um, and that's something that I, I appreciate immensely. Um, but I guess going back, uh, yeah, I, I have to say, man, it's it's really tough. You know, I'm I'm the personality that I have to learn the hard way. And that if I, even if I went back and told myself something, I'd probably look at myself in the future and say, whatever, man. <laughs> You're an idiot. I I can still do it myself. I can still figure this out on my own. Um, well, so it, uh, it, the other question that always goes along with that is, and one which is I'm interested in your answer because of your sort of entrepreneurial nature, is uh, what's the most influential piece of advice that you receive while working in the industry? Uh, so much, so much. Um, really... Uh, and I struggle with this every day. Um, but it's, it's being humble, uh, listening as much as possible. And you, you'd like to think that someone who hosts a podcast and, you know, and who has these conversations and listens, um, that I would be better at it, but, um, understanding all perspectives before I make a judgment, um, you know, not being quick to judge, um, those are all all things that I I strive literally every minute of every day to be better at. And I have a handful of mantras that I I say to myself when I try to find, when I find my thought pattern going down that road of just being quiet, listening intently, trying to understand where someone is truly coming from um, and just seeking to understand versus to be understood. And that's one of the, one of the key things that uh, has been, you know, drilled into me by so many different people from, you know, the, the spiritual people that I, uh, mentors I have in my life, the professional mentors in my life, you know, family members and whatnot, um, is really just to stop and be quiet and to really truly listen. And it's not just, you know, speaking to that, it's not just with other people, but it's with myself. So me without time to meditate and just truly be quiet and to, um, listen to myself, I'm a much, more productive, happier human being um, after I've spent that time really uh, listening to my inner voice. And I think that that is something that everybody needs more of 
in their life. Uh, you know, unless you're a monk and you spend all day, every day doing that, which if there's any monks listening, I applaud you for listening to this podcast. Um, <laughs> I doubt there's very many monks listening to this. You know, we should all strive to have that, that um, time in our life every day, uh, if not at least once a week, um, to just be quiet and listen to our inner voice and try to figure out what it is that we need to do to become the best version of ourselves. I think that's a, a great place to kind of wrap up. And I, I thank you so much for this conversation, but also for all of the conversations that uh, you've contributed to the industry through the I Love Data Centers podcast. Uh, I listen to them all the time uh, as I'm driving around or, or, or working and they always provide insight. And interestingly, because I know many of the people you're talking about, I always hear pieces of their story that uh, I had never heard before. So for those of you that are, that are listening today, uh, I hope you've enjoyed getting to, to hear more of Sean's story. And uh, Sean, I thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to share your thoughts. And as always, we want to close with uh, uh, asking uh, uh, one last question, uh, Sean Patrick Terrio. Do you love data centers? I love data centers. I truly do, man. I mean, I I am not the human being that I am today if it wasn't for my experience working in this space. And you know, my heart goes out to Pete Scafani, who's still a close personal friend of mine, for bringing me into this whole world. So I blame him for, you know, anyone and everyone listening to this podcast can blame him for uh, everything I've done in this space, or you know, thank him for everything I've done in this space. But. No, Rich, before I go, I just want to thank you. There's no one who's more qualified and better fit to, to sit on the other side of the table uh, when having this conversation with, with myself. So thank you so much. And I think there could be some, some other interesting angles that we can take this conversation as new topics in the industry pop up that we can discuss together. I'd be excited about that. I, I feel like we're kind of kindred spirits on this crazy journey through the data center world. So I uh, thank you for the, the compliment and, and for your time and all you do. Awesome. Thank you, Rich. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, the Data Center Colocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon. <laughs>